right, good evening, everyone. Let me just arrange a few things here for myself. Um, before I get started, let me just tell you a little bit about um, who I am, so you know who, is, who this is that's talking. Uh, I pastor a church in Huntington Beach, California. I have done that for a little over 28 years called Seabreeze Church. Uh, I'm married, have been married to my wife for 33 and a half years. And um, I'm, I'm very grateful for that as well, so thanks. And then uh, we've got two kids, both of them married, and uh, have five grandchildren. So four girls and one boy. So the girls are definitely winning uh, on the grandkids' side. So uh, Neil asked me to, to speak to you tonight on the topic of worship. And um, what I want to say comes out of um, the book in the Bible that records, I think, the most famous of all last words uh, ever spoken. And that is the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible. Now, when it comes to last words in general, last words tend to carry more weight than uh, everyday words. Part of the reason is, you know, everyday words, well, if you weren't paying attention or you kind of zoned out, they'll be probably said again the next day. But last words, if you don't pay attention, you'll miss them. And so last words tend to be summary words. They, they summarize what the speaker um, values and what they want those they love to know and to do. And this is really true of the book of Revelation. Now, if you've ever read the book of Revelation in the Bible, it's, it's, a, it's a wild ride. It's an interesting book. But it contains a tremendous amount of value uh, because they summarize much of what uh, has already been said in the pages earlier of Scripture. So the last words of God uh, recorded in the book of Revelation summarize the ten most important topics that every one of us must eventually face. And so we're going to throw up here. These are the, the ten topics that uh, the book of Revelation uh, covers. Now, these ten are presented not as a uh, to-do list, you know, be sure you do all these things and do them this way, or, you know, or a list of rules. These are not the ten commandments. These are really listed as a series of visions to see. The book of Revelation, for the most part, is written in poetic form. And poetry is designed not so much just to give us a precise set of words, but to, to paint a visual picture. And so you see through the, the book of Revelation um, a scene, a poetic scene painted about each of these ten uh, topics. And the reason it's important for us to understand that these are visions for us to see is because we build our lives out of what we see, not out of what we're told to do. Uh, short term, you might do what someone tells you to do, but long term, you're going to make decisions based on what you see, how you perceive the future in particular. And it's your vision of the future that's going to inform your decisions today. And so the book of Revelation, in part, is one of God's ways to give us an opportunity to properly imagine the future and to correct our imagination of what the future really is going to be like. Because if we have a wrong idea about the future, we're going to end up making decisions that are going to get us off track uh, in the present and build a, a life that's not pleasing to God. So in these last words, we are given these ten poetic paintings of the way things really are both now and the way things are going to be in the end. And if we will allow our imaginations to be stretched by these images and then corrected by these images, then we're going to get a chance to build a life that's going to produce the joys that are represented in this book and not the sorrows that are also presented in this book. 
So let me just kind of talk through up to the point where we get to worship. We're going to talk about worship tonight. But the first vision in the book of Revelation is the vision of Christ. Uh, we see the, an, an amazing image of Christ. We're not going to take time to look at this tonight, but I encourage you to go back and read through it. But it's, it's a vision of Christ at the very center of all of reality and the vision of us in our place, on our knees, before Christ in surrender, and then back up on our feet to follow and to serve him. That's the first vision. The second image is of the church. And it's an image of Jesus Christ walking among the churches. And one of the key ideas is that if, if you want to find Jesus, if you want to follow Jesus, you're, you're going to find him among the church. A lot of times people want to separate Jesus from the church. But in the book of Revelation, it's really clear. You can't separate these two. Jesus walks among the churches. And a church is, well, it's just ordinary places full of ordinary people, you know, like us. But it turns out to be the lampstands of God's light in this world. And that's the image that we're given. But tonight, I want to direct our attention to the third painting, poetic painting in the book of Revelation. And it's a vision of what worship looks like from God's perspective. Now, to the casual observer, what, what happens here Thursday nights when you guys gather is, is not that impressive. Interesting, but not that impressive. I mean, I saw a Channel 7 uh, news van outside. I don't know why they're here, but I'm sure they're not covering this. <laughs> they, they didn't come to because someone told them, hey, a group of students are gathering together, um, and they're going to be worshiping. And so Channel 7 said, well, we, yeah, that's our, that's our lead story. We've got to get on that. No, that. I don't know why they're here, but that's not why they're here. So this looks unimpressive to most people. I mean, let's be honest. We sing some songs that we enjoy, maybe, but they're not popular songs. Um, and then someone like me uh, reads some verses out of a very old book that very few take seriously anymore. And then someone else, you know, like me or Neil or someone else, you know, stands up here and we make comments that have little or no entertainment value. Sometimes you might gather and you might eat little pieces of bread and drink juice to remember the body and blood of Christ. And so most people look at that and say, that's, that's just weird, odd. And, and given our, how busy our lives are, and honestly, how great the weather usually is here in Southern California, it's, it's surprising that anybody carves out the time to do this week after week after week. But there, there's much more going on in a gathering like this than meets the eye. And it turns out that this gathering is really a door that opens up and allows us to get a glimpse of heaven, just a glimpse, but a little a little glimpse into what heaven is right now. Now, the second painting in Revelation of the church points to the third painting of worship. The last word to the last church that's described was the Laodicean church. And the Laodicean church was um, a city that was on a, uh, the ancient Roman postal route in what is now modern-day Turkey. And it was one of the first century churches. And the last word to this church was an invitation to worship. And here's what we read in Revelation 3, uh, 3 verse 20. This is a verse 
that many people know in Revelation. But here's what it says. Here I am, Jesus says, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Now, when I first heard this verse, I was told that this was just a personal invitation to me or to other people. And in part it is that, but it's much more than that. Because this verse, this sentence, these sentences were written and spoken to a church, not just an individual. It's an invitation to a church. So what happens when we open the door? Well, Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5 answers the question and shows us what really happens from the perspective of heaven when we gather like this to worship. Just two verses after that Revelation 3.20 verse, we see Jesus opening the door. So we've knocked on the door, and after the door is knocked on, we read this in Revelation 4 verse 1, just two verses later. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door, that door, standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here. And I'll show you what must soon take place after this. So what was on the other side of the door? Heaven. So in worship, the door to heaven is open. Not so that we could satisfy our curiosity. I mean, it would be interesting to just get a glimpse of heaven. But that's not the purpose. What does the voice say? It says, come up here. So we gather in worship. So that the perspective we have on our ordinary days, in our ordinary lives, might be elevated. You know, the reason we need to do this is not just so that we can feel better about ourselves, but so that we can see what must take place after this. You see, the quality of the decisions that you and I make is determined by the accuracy of our vision of the future. And the challenge for us is that most often we can't see beyond this far. The reason is because all we can see is this. Whatever this is, this week, this problem, this assignment, this challenge. I mean, all of our weeks are full of this. And we just, we get stuck in this. And we think about this. And we worry about this. And God says, you need to elevate your vision. You need to look, what's going to happen after this? And then after that, and then after that. I mean, I'm, I'm 59 now, and I, from my experience, I can't even remember what I was all freaked out and worried about in my 20s. So, and what ha I can't even remember some of the stuff I was worried about last week. But that, that's the way this is. This is just all-consuming, whatever this is. And we tend to live our days blinded by this, and then this, and then this, and then this. And God says, you need, to, you need to get a view of this and your life from a higher elevation, from the perspective of heaven, and heaven has the best view. So worship reveals to us this elevated perspective in four particular ways. This is in Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5. Now, I'm not going to read all of these chapters. I would encourage you to go back and read them. They're fascinating. But I'm going to tell you the outline of what's being said here. 
the first way that heaven elevates our perspective is that worship centers us, or rather worship elevates our perspective, is that worship centers us. It, it tells us what really is most important. So here's what we read in Revelation 4, the next verses, uh, 2 through 3. It says, At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. A rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. So the first thing we see as the door of heaven is opened in worship is we see a throne. Now, a throne represents what? It represents the center of authority. The word throne appears in 17 of the 22 chapters in, in the book of Revelation. Five verses later, we are told that the someone who is sitting on the throne is God, God Almighty. It's his throne. Now, if we were, of course, in heaven, it would be impossible to miss the fact that God is the one who is on the throne and at the center of everything. But we're not in heaven. We're here on earth. And we can't see his throne. And here on earth, there's a lot of distractions. And there are a lot of thrones here on earth vying for power. I mean, there's political thrones. There's economic thrones and centers of power. There are military thrones. There are academic thrones. And in all of these power struggles, it's really easy to miss God on his throne. And, of course, the most powerful, I think, and disorienting throne of all is the one that we have constructed for ourselves. I don't know if you realize this, but all of us have built a throne for us to sit on in our own minds and hearts. I mean, we have all in various ways decided, you know what, we should be at the center of our lives. This should be about us. And, and we tend to think that the people and circumstances of this world should do our bidding. I mean, they should, and we don't want them to actually bow before us, just do what we want them to do. That's the, that's the general orientation we have. But our thrones, these thrones of selfishness, are all failed kingdoms. And the reason, because no matter how much power we amass, we are not and never will be, in fact, at the center. God is at the center, not us, not any other throne. So until we surrender and get down off of our thrones, we will live in the chaos of a real-life Game of Thrones. I mean, that, that's really what goes on. Now, I have not seen this show, and I do not recommend that you watch it. If you have not, I would recommend you not watch it. But I know it's a very popular show, and it's a, it's a fascinating premise. This is the plot to the Game of Thrones, as, as stated by that great authority of all authorities, Wikipedia. Here's, here's the plot. The plot is everyone is either vying to claim a throne or fighting for independence from a throne. And it's a great description of the way life is. We are living in a real game of thrones. So we look out on our world, and that's, well, that's what we see. A game of thrones going on. I mean, we are bombarded by this every day. And we wake up, and if we get any news feed at all, well, we get to hear what's swirling around, the latest scramble for power between the Democrats and the Republicans. And in a post-political season, there's lots going on. There's always a lot going on now. And then you go to class, and you work for a grade so that you can 
get a job and elevate your income and so that you can, well, get closer and closer to maybe the centers of the economic power that would allow you greater income. And there's, there's nothing wrong with that, but boy, as soon as you get in the marketplace, you'll discover that that's a Game of Thrones. There, there's just, there's power struggles. And the academic world is a Game of Thrones. And then you go home, maybe to roommates who, like you, they want life to work out their way. And so there's conflict because everybody's kind of running their own little kingdom, trying to carve out their turf. And then we go to bed and we wake up the next morning, we do this all over again. And th this is why one day a week, the king of kings knocks on the door of his subjects and says, hey, why don't you come on up here? Why don't you take yet another tour of the castle of heaven and, and see how little these thrones are? And why don't you center yourself around the king of kings and the throne of all thrones and allow your life once again to be centered and bow before him? You often hear the phrase uh, about a person needing to be centered. It's really true. The problem is, is in this world, there, there's nothing with the gravitational mass to really orbit our lives around. God is the only one that we can really center our lives around. Every other center keeps moving and changing. And so when, when we gather and worship around the throne of God, it centers us. It centers our life around the throne that would capture everyone's attention if they could just see it. But it's not visible. So we gather and worship to look at the invisible throne that the king of kings sits on. The second part that we see when we look at this poetic image in Revelation about worship is that worship gathers. It centers us, centers us and then it gathers us. You know, as, as you approach the throne of God in Revelation, you discover we're not alone. We're not the only ones before the throne. This is what we read in verse 4, Revelation 4. Surrounding the throne, there were 24 other thrones. And seated on them were 24 elders. And they were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. So around the one throne, there's 24 other thrones. With an elder seated on each one of those 24 thrones. So this is a double 12. And it represents the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament and the 12 apostles of the church in the New Testament. So these 24 thrones together collectively cover the entire history in the Bible of those who have gathered around the one throne of the Almighty God to worship. Now, first it was Israel in the Old Testament. Now, since the New Testament, it's the church. So what happens is we enter, say, these doors, or the doors of whatever church we might go to on a Sunday, and we, we are just individuals coming from our individual homes or apartments, driving our individual cars, riding our individual bikes, walking our individual paths. And our natural tendency is, is to enter into a room for the purpose of worship and remain individuals. And then we walk back out these doors as individuals again, having learned something maybe to help us with our individual lives. But that's 
not the purpose of worship. You see, we're not just a collection of individuals today. We are a part of a great gathering around the throne of God. It's bigger than us. I mean, every throne has a history to it. And God's throne has the longest history of all to it. So it's important to understand that as you gather here every Thursday night or at a church on Sunday morning, you are part of a much bigger group than the size of whatever group you're with. You are, what, you, what in fact you're doing and what I'm doing is we are standing near the end of a long line of people who throughout all of history have done what we're doing right now. You know, we're not just here looking for what will help us with our individual lives. And that's why people go to grocery stores, right? To get something for their individual life. That's not why people worship. It shouldn't be why people worship. Now, we do get help here, but we're not gathered just for our individual selves. We, we are gathered to gaze on the throne that centers all of reality so that we can put our individual lives in their proper place around something much bigger than us, around God. And then as we look side to side in a room like this and realize we're not alone, and then as we look throughout the, the stretch of history, back in history, we realize this is much bigger than us we get a chance to see what heaven sees. Our individual lives finding their orientation and their purpose by being a part of God's people. But it turns out we humans are not the only ones gathered around the throne. All of creation is also gathered. So it goes on to say this in verses 6 through 8 of Revelation 4. In the center around the throne were four living creatures and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was flying like an eagle. This is where I said Revelation gets kind of wild. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Now, I've, I've seen some artists try to draw what this looks like. And it's a freak show. But you see, this, this is poetry. This, this wasn't meant to be precisely drawn. This is to give us an impression like poetry does. And what this is, is this is a collection of different kinds of animals and creatures and wings and images and claws. And it represents all aspects of, of creation. You know, as humans made in the image of God, we do have a unique position around the throne. But creation is not silent in this worship set. You know, Psalm 19 says it very well. One and two, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech and night after night, they display knowledge. And what does it say? Day and night, they never stop saying. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. This is a very important thing to understand. Worship is, is not a departure from the real world that we can see and into the spiritual world that we can't see. No, no worship gathers all of reality, all of creation, both seen and unseen, 
And it centers it all around the throne of God. So it's in worship that we, we find our place, first with God at the center, and then in the community of other followers of Christ as we take our place on the stage of history. And we play our role for however much time we're given. The third thing that worship does is worship reveals. So after that great gathering scene before the throne, this is what we read in Revelation 5, verses 1 through 4. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to, to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Now, to the first century Christian who first read these words and heard these words, the word scroll meant scripture. I mean, the books of the Bible were written back then on scrolls. But whether it's in scroll form like it was back then or in page form like it is right now, the words of God have always had a predominant place and have been featured as God's people gather and worship. So it's no surprise that a scroll appears in the middle of this great painting describing worship. What is surprising, though, is that the appearance of the scroll causes John, the author of Revelation, to weep, not just sniffle and cry a little bit, but to weep and weep. Why? Well, it turns out the scroll is sealed. And, and no one could be found who was worthy to break the seals and open the scroll. What's this talking about? This is pointing to an old problem. Not, not a physical seal that would prevent the scrolls of God's word from being opened, but, but a seal of insight that kept them from being understood. You see, you have to understand that for hundreds of years, the people of God had debated about how the prophecies of the Old Testament would be fulfilled and when these things might occur and who would the Messiah be and how would these prophecies be fulfilled? The scroll had been sealed. There were guesses, but no one knew. And then one day, a carpenter's son stood up at a weekly gathering of the synagogue in his hometown and he asked for the scroll of Isaiah to be brought. Now, this was shocking in and of itself. Because the public reading of scripture was usually reserved for the elders and rabbis, and he was just a carpenter's son. But he asked for the scroll to be given, and it was gathered and brought to Jesus. And this is what we read in Luke 4, verses 17 through 21. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. This is one part where I wish there was video. I would love to see this in video. Everyone's looking at Jesus. What is he doing? And he began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, here's how that exact scene is described in Revelation. 
Revelation 5, 5, we read, Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He's able to open the scrolls and its seven seals. Luke is a description of what it looked like from the perspective of earth. Revelation 5, 5 tells this scene described from the perspective of heaven. You see, until the arrival of Jesus, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the answers to so many of the questions in the scriptures could not really be fully answered. But now they can. You know, one of the great joys of Christian worship is that Christ has unsealed the scrolls. No more guessing about who the Messiah is or what the prophecies might mean or when these things might occur. So what happens, and this is amazing, we, we get to gather in weekly meetings like this and we get to open up the unsealed scrolls of God's word and we can listen to explanations of what these words really mean and how they can be applied to our daily lives. That is a tremendous gift. To hear the words of God and to have the light bulb go on inside your head and say, oh, okay, now I know what to do in this situation. Now I know what scripture says about this. So this is why worship always reveals. One of the purposes of worship is to open our eyes. Now, I don't know about you, but I need insight every week at least. This is why worship is a, a regular routine. It's not like you download enough insight for the year and you're good to go. No, we need, I mean, in my life, I'm sure in your life, life is dynamic and problems erupt that you hadn't even imagined three weeks ago. And you need insight. You, you need God's word to reveal. You need the lamp of God to show you the path in front of you. And so we gather so that God's word can reveal. So once the scrolls are opened by Jesus and the weeping stops, the next thing we hear is singing. So this is the last element of worship. The fourth element is that worship sings. Singing has always been the serious business of heaven and therefore a major part of worship. Look at this in Revelation 5, 9. This is just some experts. And they sang a new song. I'll let you read the lyrics. Sadly, we don't have the music, just the words. But they sang a new song, Revelation 5, 11 through 12. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. That's a lot of voices. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they what? Spoke? No, they sang. And you can read the lyrics of the song they sang. Verse 13 of the same chapter. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth. So this is everybody. The choir now is fully assembled. And on the sea and all that is in them singing. And here are the words. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. I wish we had the music. I'm sure that the reason we don't have the music is so that we can compose songs in our culture, in our time, to reflect worship. Have you ever wondered why we do all this singing every week? I mean, let's be honest. It's not normal to do this. When, when else do you do this? You know, gather in a group like this and just start singing. I mean, when else this week will you get together with people and just break out in song? 
that's weird. You don't, you know, this is not done. I mean, you might go to a sporting event and mumble your way through the national anthem, but that's not the, po that's not the point. You're not there to sing. You're there for the game. You might go to a concert and sing along with your favorite songs, but the focus, again, is on the performance. It's on what going on, what's going on on stage, not, not on your singing. But this singing is about us singing to God in worship, not watching people on stage singing. I mean, everyone up here, we may be faced to look at this, but if all we're thinking is, wow, that's, yeah, I sang that well, or whoop, made a mistake on that note, or whatever, if we're thinking about this group, we're not worshiping. We're in a concert. We gather to worship. What's interesting about Revelation is, as you read through it, you get this impression that if anything important needs to be said in heaven, it must be sung. And so heaven, as I've read through it in the book of Revelation, heaven appears to be kind of one big musical. <laughs> now, I love music. I am not a fan of musicals. I don't like musicals. I mean, the, some of the newer ones like La La Land and, you know, The Greatest Showman, okay, they're getting better. Th those are good. But, you know, your classic musical where some guy's talking to his gal and he just starts singing, it's, it's just, you know, no one does that. So my thought always is if you're going to say something, just say it. Don't sing it. You know, those songs, the melodies are weird because you're, you should just be talking, not singing. But God appears to be a big fan of singing and not just in heaven. What's interesting is the singing doesn't end at the borders of heaven. What we are told and what I read earlier is all of creation joins in in this big, giant, musical worshiping God. So what is it that's so important to God about us singing to him? Why can't we just talk or think? He knows what we're thinking. Why do we have to open our mouths and... Uh, uh, sing. Well, singing has been referred to as the language of the heart. You know, the reason the music industry is so huge is because music has a way of communicating and connecting with us like nothing else. Now, words will allow you to transfer one idea from one mind to the next. But so much of creation is really beyond words, isn't it? I mean, you can describe a sunset, but have you done that sunset justice, even if you're poetic? I mean, words just fall short. So how much more the author of sunsets in all beauty? So if we want to just think about God and leave with ideas to ponder, then words will do. You know, words like this will do, and that's good. But if we are, we are to bow in the presence of all power and all beauty, then we just, we've got to sing. Words just won't cut it. It won't do for us to stand before the throne of God with our arms crossed in silence and mumbling our way through a few songs. That is an affront to the throne of God to, to just gather and sing mindlessly without thought of the words that we're singing and the one that we're singing them to. Now, you may be thinking, 
look, I'm, I'm an awful singer. Trust me. Nobody wants to hear me sing. And you're probably right. <laughs> Nobody wants to hear you sing. With the exception of one. God wants to hear you sing. And he wants to hear you sing to him. Because it's, it's about us and God. It's not about me and you and what you think of how I sound and what you think of how they sound or what you think about how the band sounds. But this, this is before God we do this. So I want to invite the, the band to come, come on back up front here. Now that we've talked about worship, we're going to do a little more of it. And as they get, get ready to lead us, I want to, I want to read um, a couple verses to you. And then we're, uh, we're going to sing a couple more songs together. Here's what Revelation 5, 13 through 14 says. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praised and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Now that's a song. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. So let me invite you to go ahead and stand and join your voices with all of creation and let's worship. 